0: Our second reading is taken from the Gospel according to John, chapter 13, verse 1, following. I'm reading from the New International Version. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon... He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Once you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. May God grant to our hearts an understanding of this important part of his word. Now then, I want to talk this morning about a very important theme. It has to do with something which is absolutely essential uh, to Christian service, and that is the submission of ourselves under the lordship of Christ. The great enemy of our growth and grace is, of course, pride, which always cuts us all down. And the only answer to pride is humility. And the greatest example of humility is the Lord Jesus Christ, The greatest example of pride is Satan himself. Satan came to scatter. That's his business, always to scatter, always to create dissension, always to create trouble. He's a scatterer, and he causes trouble wherever he goes. And if you take the time to look up in the Gospel of John, this important passage which I read in your hearing a moment ago from John chapter 13, you will see that chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are chapters which deal with instructions which our Lord gave to his disciples in that upper room on the very night in which he was betrayed. There are important lessons that he wishes for them to learn, and this gospel of John, which is so remarkable and which I commend to you to read in a fresh translation in Mark, and mark it and digest its truth. Someone has said that it's like a clear, crystal, limpid pool that a little tiny child can splash and wade in and learn from. He can lisp the words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And they said at the same time, it is a pool so deep that the hugest elephant can swim in it because it has great profundity to it. There are those critics of the Gospel of John who like to compare its teachings with the ancient philosopher Philo or some of the Alexandrian philosophers who lived uh, at this time in which it was written. But believe me, no beggar ever dying, ever quoted Philo or one of the Alexandrian philosophers. No little child ever lisp their words, but they have often passed into eternity with the words of Jesus from John 14, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And so this record of the gospel carries with it a great blessing for those who read and study it and mark its purposes. Its whole purpose is stated in John 20:20. 20, 20 Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye may have life in his name. The greatest single one-volume commentary on the Gospel of John that I know of is by Professor Leon Morris, one of the professors who will be at Vancouver. And he has stated what many other great students of the Gospel of John have, that the seven signs in the Gospel of John are seven golden milestones to draw us into a surrender of our lives to the Lordship of Christ. From the beginning of the Gospel of John, when we see Jesus turning the water into wine, his second miracle, the healing of the nobleman's son, his third miracle, the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, Uh, His uh, fourth miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. His fifth miracle, the walking on the water. His sixth miracle, the healing of the man born blind. And his seventh miracle. And seven is the perfect number, which is the preface and the prologue to his own resurrection, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Now, all of this is built up to teach us who he is and so later when his own apostle John looks back to that night in that upper room which was so filled with uh, anxiety and tension he is struck not only by the things that Jesus said but he is struck by something that Jesus did he can remember And it will never go from his mind, and I think it must have been with good reason, probably because he was being corrected himself. Tradition tells us that John was the youngest of the twelve apostles, and that it would have been the duty of the youngest of the twelve to have washed the feet of the elder uh, ones in the group. This little apostolic band found themselves sometimes arguing. You remember that when Jesus had been on the Mount of Transfiguration... How he had taken with him Peter and James and John. How he had the circle of the twelve and then the inner circle of the three and the outer circle of the seventy. Well, he took those three with him into the mountain of transfiguration and God revealed great things to him there. Elijah and Moses appeared to him. And Peter in his own blustering way, said, Lord, let us make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Jesus had to speak to Peter. He was talking with Moses and Elijah about his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem, that all that the law of Moses had been written to perform and do, all that the prophets had instructed, was going to be culminated in the great work of God with the battle with Satan, which would take place at Calvary, where Satan would expend all that he had and be defeated when Jesus would die to pay the price for our sins. For there God exhausted himself in the death of his own son and in the mighty resurrection of his son from the dead, He gained the great victory over all the powers of death and hell forever. For those who believe in the Lord Jesus and they share in that victory with him. And John reflects upon all of this now, all that took place in that upper room. And he could remember that great experience on the Mount of Transfiguration and what had happened when they came back down and they saw a poor father who was beseeching beseeching the disciples that were there at the foot of the mountain to heal his poor demented son who was afflicted by a demon. And you remember the father with tears had fallen down at the feet of Jesus and and had said to him, I besought your disciples to heal my child because he is possessed of a demon that casts him sometimes into the fire. And the poor boy was there. And he said, your disciples could do nothing. And Jesus said to him, do you believe? Do you believe in the Son of God? And he said, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And that father, that father's belief was recognized by Jesus and led to his own belief in Jesus as the Messiah and to the own healing of his son. Dr. John Newton last Sunday preached a great Father's Day sermon on this theme, that we fathers, if we come to Jesus, pleading with him to help us in our unbelief, we may see our own salvation and healing also brought to our children when we humble ourselves in that way. Well, after Jesus had granted the request of this man and he had his son had been healed. Jesus told these that this kind came out except only by prayer and by fasting, knowing something of the intensity of surrender to God in all things. Well, right away, the disciples fell into an argument about which one should be greatest. Jesus had been in a mountain talking about his decease, which should be accomplished at Jerusalem. And they were arguing about who would be the greatest in his messianic kingdom. And so that's why in the account that Jim read, and you're hearing a moment ago from the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? And if you read the Mark account in Mark 9, it says that they grew silent. They were embarrassed. You see, this is one of the marks of the deity of Christ. He knew what they were talking about. He knew they were arguing about which one would be the greatest. And so he said, what are you talking about? They grew very silent. They were ashamed. They were talking about which one would be the greatest. They'd failed to catch his point about service all the way through. And so Jesus took a little child. And he said, he who would be the greatest is going to have to learn to be the least and have to learn to be the last. And he wanted them to know it is a very hard lesson for them to learn. And then in the very shadow of the cross, if you le- read carefully, Luke chapter 22, you will find that the mother of James and John, ambitious for her two sons, comes to Jesus and says to him, grant that my two sons may sit the one on your right hand and the one on your left hand when you come into your kingdom. Still they're thinking about earthly, material, glorious success in this way. And Jesus had to rebuke her. Jesus had to say to them, are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of and to be baptized with a baptism that I am baptized with? And they said, Lord, we are able. I don't think they really knew all that that was going to entail. But bless God, after the resurrection in Pentecost, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able. To be able. And they yielded themselves. And they did follow him in drinking of the cup that he drank of and being baptized with the baptism that he was baptized with. This is a painful route that many of us today... Uh, do not wish to pursue nor to follow. But that we have a sick sort of success-oriented Christianity that is being purveyed today. That if you become a Christian, you automatically become successful. You automatically are healed. You automatically are beautiful. You're automatically everything else. And this is just not what Jesus taught. The things may come good, but they may, you may be led through what Jim has been led through with that little son of his that was born into the world with a terrible, terrible defect that had to be corrected and a painful experience of much prayer before God in surrendering the little one to him. And he can tell you what it is to grow through, go through this crucible uh, of pain when you see a little one suffer. Uh, everything is not always going to be as pretty as we hope for it to be. And so it is for this reason that Jesus, in this upper room, when he knows that they are still arguing on the way into the upper room itself about which one will be the greatest. And like a group of surly schoolboys, they walk into the upper room right past the towel and the basin. Not one of them has grace enough to reach over and get the pitcher of water in the basin and began to wash the dust off of each other's feet, as was the custom in those times. But instead, they all sit down at the table. And when Jesus saw that they were all too proud to do this simple thing for each other, Jesus got up himself and laid aside his outer garments and gird about him a towel. Someone has said that we ought to create an order of the towel service people who are willing to be servants. And Jesus took the towel and girded it about himself. And then he poured water into a basin. And you can imagine the tremendous silence that must have fallen over that group of 12 men as he went through them, one by one. They knew all of the things that he had taught them. They had heard him teaching before. They could remember so well when Jesus warned them in a moment ago when Jim was singing that marvelous song, I Will Arise and Go to Jesus. It comes really out of the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus' continual hassle with the Pharisees and the scribes who criticized him. And if you look in the preceding verses before that parable takes place, You will see that Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. He was being carefully watched. Now, why would they watch him? They wanted to find some discrepancy and some custom that he did. There in front of him was a man suffering from the dropsy. He wasn't there by accident. They brought that man and put him there, a pitiful looking creature. They knew that Jesus' heart would be moved with pity. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of him, Jesus healed the man and sent him away. And then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. And when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And if so, the host, remember the host picks out where you sit. If the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat, then humiliated you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. After all of this teaching, they still didn't get the point until Jesus starts this example this demonstration of humility. The best exposition and commentary of which is in Philippians chapter two, where we are told that he emptied himself of all of the glory and the power that was his and came into this world for the purpose of demonstrating to us the great love of God and that love through humility. And so the example that he takes And you remember how he washes each one's feet. And then he comes to Peter. And I love Peter above all the other of the apostles. I can remember when I first went to the city of Rome. I was studying one summer in the Waldensian Seminary. And it wasn't far from the uh, Vatican. And I used to go down sometimes to the Vatican and go into St. Peter's Cathedral And go over to the statue of St. Peter, where there was always a line of pilgrims coming to uh, kiss the toe of St. Peter. And I used to think, oh, these Catholics are really Sunday coming in, you're kissing the toe of this statue. And I even got down and looked up under the toe and saw where they'd had to reinforce it, it had been kissed away at once. But the longer I live, I feel like kissing Peter's toe myself now, because he's taught me so much. Uh, It's not because uh, I consider him an idol. It's because I've learned so much from him. Uh, This impetuous person, here comes uh, Jesus to him. And Peter says, Lord, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to let you wash my feet. And then Jesus said, all right, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you can't have any part in me just as swift. He says, well, then in that case, wash my head and my hands and all of me. You see, changes so quickly. And I love him because he gives expression to his feelings. He wanted to be sure that he was right with the Lord. And Jesus told him, he said, what I'm doing now, you don't understand, but later on you will understand. Later on, you'll look back on it and you'll understand it. And then he said, he who has his feet, cleaned. Uh, He who has his body cleaned just needs the dust washed from his feet, and then he'll be cleansed again. Uh, That means whole because they walk through dirty, dusty streets, and even after having a bath, if you just walked someone else's house, you had dust on the feet. And so when that dust is removed, then the defilement of the road was taken away. And it's like this with the word of God. The word which Jesus speaks is meant to cleanse us. That's why it's important to come to Sunday school and to church and to study your Bible, to read it every day, to see if your life is being lived in harmony with him. When we read these wonderful things, then we can strike a chord. I saw a man tuning a piano the other day, and he would strike something and tune it and strike again and tune it. And this is the way the scriptures do. They bring us into harmony with the Lord. This is what he wants to do. Jesus said, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. How many of us really take this seriously? And if we don't, why don't we take it seriously? It's enough to help us to wash away the hypocrisy from our feet and the hypocrisy from our souls and then to do something. Well, we say, here is a book by James Mishner, which I've been reading, I love sports. But after reading this book, I don't like sports as much anymore. You know, it, it, did you see Woody Hayes when he jumped off the bench and banged into the player from Clemson? Uh, this hurts. It, it, it hurts because the will to win becomes so fiercely competitive that you do anything to win. And some of the comments that some of the coaches, Daryl Royal of the University of Texas, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Frank McGuire of South Carolina, uh, in this country when you finish second, no one knows your name. Bill Musselman of Minnesota, defeat is worse than death because you have to live with defeat. And Leo DeRocher summed it all up when he says, nice guys, finish last. Well, this may be a, a sports way of talking. But in Jesus' way, the the re, re, the roles are reversed. I never heard of a football team called the Lambs. Did you? <laughs> and yet there is a certain wrath of the Lamb. Did you ever know a football team named the Lambs? I brought up here some things that I'm not going to have time to get into. Let me just show them to you and you get them and read them. And you'll get blessed. This one of my sons picked up for me is... Malcolm Muggeridge's little book, Something Beautiful for God. Something Beautiful for God. And it's the story of Mother Teresa and her work in Calcutta in India. I should explain in the first place that Mother Teresa has requested that nothing in the nature of a biography or a study of her should be attempted. Christ's life, she wrote to me, was not written during his lifetime, and yet he did the greatest work on earth. The work that I do is his work, and to remain so, all of us are but his instruments who do our little bit and pass by. Do you see the humility of that sweet, precious soul who labors away with those who are leprous and filthy and poor and dying in the slums of Calcutta? Anyone who's ever been in Calcutta will know that that person there has certainly picked up on what Jesus taught. And then you can see that, does this mean that if you become like this, that you're just going to be a sort of Casper Milk Toast type of personality? No, I never considered Elizabeth Wilson that way. You can be the dean of a school and, and operate that way, especially women's dean and every other job in the church and in the college here. You have to exercise discipline and authority, but you do it with love. This is one of my favorite books. It's Alan Burgess' story of the small woman, the story of Gladys Aylward. I saw Gladys Aylward once in person and I heard her speak. I'll never forget it because the pulpit at which she spoke was really, I don't think, one bit taller than this pulpit here and she had to walk around from that pulpit in order for us to see her. She had been a parlor maid in London And the Lord God had laid it upon her heart that she should be a missionary to China. And dusting the books of a doctor, she had begun to read about all the millions in China. And so she went to the China Inland Mission and applied to be a missionary. They told her that she was past age, didn't have enough education, and that they appreciated her zeal, but that they simply couldn't send her to China. So she decided she would be her own mission board. And she started saving money from wages as a serving maid as a parlor maid to go to China as a missionary. And Alan Burgess tells of his first interview with her. But surely, I said, in 20 years in China, you must have had some strange experiences. Oh, yes, said Gladys, but I'm sure people wouldn't be interested in them. Nothing exciting ever happened. Well, it was at least 15 minutes more before she confessed, yes, once she did take some children across some mountain. The rest of the conversation went in this manner a verbatim memory which I have never forgotten. Across some mountains, where was this? In Shaanxi in North China, we traveled from Yangqing across the mountains to Xi'an. I see, how long did that take you? Oh, about a month. Did you have any money? Oh no, we didn't have any money. I see, what about food? How did you get food? Well, the mandarin gave us two baskets full of grain, but we soon ate that up. I see. How many children did you say there were? Oh, a hundred. I became conscious that I was saying rather often, I see, when actually I wasn't seeing anything at all, (laughs) except that I was on the brink of the most tremendous story of my life. And then he tells of this incredible little woman who goes to China with that sweet, simple faith in Jesus and learns the language and goes into a village. And she begins to speak to the people about the living God. And she wanted desperately to witness. And there is a, uh, no opportunity for her to go into a prison. And she wanted so much to go. And then one day, a riot occurred in the prison. And a messenger came with a big, typical Chinese way of making things red and gaudy-looking. Uh, big uh, commandment that she was to be summoned immediately to a prison and and uh, to uh see the governor of that prison uh the messenger was frightened that she wouldn't come because if she didn't come it usually meant the messenger would get killed uh, all right you you go and see what it's all about i'll go said uh, gladys i'll go the man had begged her to go and um uh, Uh, So when he gets there, the governor of the prison was small and pale-faced. His mouth was in a worried line, and he met her at the entrance of the huge prison. Behind him were a half a dozen of his staff. "'We're glad you've come,' he said quickly. "'There's a riot in the prison. The convicts are killing each other.' "'Well, so I can hear,' said Gladys. "'But what am I here for? I'm only a woman missionary. "'Why didn't you send for the soldiers to stop him?' "'The convicts are murderers, bandits, thieves,' said the governor, his voice trembling.' The soldiers are frightened, and there are not enough of them. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, said Gladys, but what do you expect me to do about it? I don't even know why you asked me to come. The governor took one step forward. You must go in there and stop the fighting. I must go in. <laughs> Gladys's mouth dropped open, her eyes rounded in utter amazement. Me? Me, go in there? Are you mad? If I went in there, they'd kill me. The governor's eyes were fixed on her with a hypnotic intensity. But how can they kill you? You tell everybody that you have come here because you have the living God inside you. The words bubbled out of the governor's mouth. His lips twisted in the acuteness of the distress. Gladys felt a small cold shiver down her back. When she swallowed her throat, seemed to have a gritty texture. The living God, she stammered. You preach it everywhere in the streets and the villages. If you preach the truth, if your God protects you from harm, then you can stop this riot. Well, Gladys stared at him. Her mind raced around in bewilderment. She searched for some fact that would explain her beliefs to this simple, deluded man. A little cell in her mind kept blinking on and off with an urgent uh, semaphore message. It's true, you've been preaching that your Christian God protects you, Fail now, and you're finished in this city. Discard your faith now, and you discard it forever. It was a desperate challenge. Somehow she had to maintain faith. Oh, these stupid, simple people, she thought. But how could she go into that prison? These men were murderers, thieves, bandits. They were rioting, killing each other. And inside those walls, by the sounds louder and louder, now a small human hell had already broken out. I must try, she said, so she prayed. Oh, God, give me strength. Then she looked up at the governor's pale face, knowing that her own face was just as pale. All right, open the door, I'll go in. She didn't trust her voice much anymore. The key, the key, snapped the governor. The key, quickly, bring the key. One of the order- orderlies came forward with a huge iron key. It looked like it was designed to unlock the deepest dungeon in the whole world. In the keyhole, a giant wards grated loudly and the immense iron door swung open, and literally Gladys was pushed inside. The door closed behind and clanked and she heard the key turn again. She was locked in prison with a horde of raving criminals who by their noise sounded as if they had all gone insane. The courtyard was about 60 feet square, with queer, cage-like structures on all four sides. Within the confines were writhing, fiendish battles going on. Several bodies were stretched out on the flagstones. One man was obviously dead, only a few feet from her, blood still pouring from a great, gaping wound in his skull. There was blood everywhere. Inside the cage-like structures, private battles were going on. No one took any notice of Gladys. For fully half a minute, she stood motionless. And then the man with the meat axe, it was a man here with a meat axe, ran uh, after another who ran toward Gladys and ducked behind him. The madman with the axe halted only a few feet from her. Without any instinctive plan, he held up the chopper which was dripping blood. Give me that at once said Gladys. The man looked at her for three long seconds. The wild, dark pupils, staring from his bloodshot eyes, gleamed at her. He took two paces forward and suddenly, meekly, held out the axe. Gladys snatched the weapon from his hand, held it rigidly by her side, although she was conscious that blood was dripping onto her trousers. And then she shouted, All of you, come over here, come over here at once and form into a line. She sounded like a an infuriated miniature undersized sergeant major. Get into line at once, you over there, come here. And then they all came. And then Gladys Aylward looked at these prisoners with lice in their hair, their faces gaunt from starvation, and her eyes filled up with tears. She asked them what it was all about, and they told her, and she promised them that the governor would do them no harm and then the governor came in and then she lectured to the governor on the conditions inside that prison and on why these people should be treated with more uh, kindness than they had received. And that precious little woman did a work for God that shook the whole world and still inspires us as we read her story. Aunt Gay Curry, one of our own congregation told me that Ingrid Bergman who played the part of Gladys Aylward in the Inn of the Eighth Happiness. When Gladys Aylward died, she died on Taiwan. She died in a room that was very simply furnished with a table and a chair and her Bible and her few clothes and a bed. Ingrid Bergman flew there. And she, not a Christian, but a person who knew real character and greatness when she saw it went into the room where Gladys Aylward had died she asked all of the other people to leave the room and leave her alone and Ingrid Bergman stayed there for a long time and when she came out her face was dripping with tears and there were those who thought that they saw some different glow in her whole presence because she was touched by the remarkable life of this incredible person who though becoming the least, becomes great in the sight of God and can do great works for him. Last year, Easter came early and I'll never forget it because Adra McKay, who came to our church, who helped me in so many different ways, everything I ever asked him to do, he was willing gladly to do. Adra McKay taught a Bible class He'd been a missionary out in Mexico, and had come back from Mexico and came here to teach as an itinerant Bible teacher and support himself. There were other friends who contributed to his support, but I never heard him ask for one cent. Adger was a blessing to me. To pray with him was to be lifted up, and each Tuesday morning, Adger and Dick Sheeler used to come to my study and we would engage in prayer. I saw remarkable answers to prayer in his life. When he became ill, I went to visit him in the hospital. He was already unconscious, and I was told that he was likely to die. That was on a Friday. The next morning was Saturday, and I called Dr. Billy Graham on the phone, and I said, Billy, I don't think Adger is going to live through the day. And he said, will you go over there with me? And I said, yes. Yes. And so we went over and went into the intensive care room and prayed for Adger. I could see Billy's face was greatly moved. We came outside and the family, friends were in the car to the doctor was greatly touched. He'd done everything in his power. And we were all moved. And then the next morning was Easter Sunday and they called me to go over to Adger's house and to talk with the children that he had just gone to be with the Lord. And I went there and the little children clustered about me. And I thought of the goodness of this sweet man of God and of how his humility had touched me and his hard work and his great faithfulness. He never caused me a moment's trouble. He was a blessing to me and he helped me greatly. And I'm glad that Christian Life magazine published an article about him. The unforgettable story of a man who had a true love for Jesus Christ. And here beneath the etching of Adger is someone washing feet. And the author of this article said that the first time that he had ever met Adger McKay He had gone to visit the farm where Adger worked over near Hendersonville, and that his first meeting of Adger was not an introduction by some people at a church gathering, but that he was at a long line of dairy cattle, stripping udders, milking cows. This was Adger's way. He worked hard. He was humble. He had a great ministry to a great many people This is why his life, I think, touched so many of us. And the writer of this article tells us something that I want to close with, which is in exact keeping with what Jesus is teaching here. He tells us about an overseer of several interdenominational churches in in Annapolis, Maryland, who had been asking God who should preside in places of spiritual leadership in the churches. And one afternoon there was a wedding in the backyard and a large crowd attended. And after the ceremony, Bob returned to the house for a few minutes, the crowd was happily milling around the yard, enjoying each other's fellowship and it started to rain. Bob was standing at the window when he saw the first big raindrops start to fall. He watched people rush as fast as they could And then he saw one man organize and start getting the chairs to bring them and put them into the garage. He called over his friend and said, I'm going to show you the leaders of the church. You watch most of the people scamper into the house, but you saw a few men instead of running for safety, doff their coats and go back to get the chairs. There's your leaders. They're willing to serve. You see, in order to be a chairman, says this writer, you need to be willing to be a chairman. You need to be a cow milker. You need to be a foot washer. And if you do that, contrary to what the world's philosophy is, you'll begin to fulfill what Jesus talks about when he says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You're allowed to keep only that which you give away. Billy Graham said very wisely one night in one of those little inspiring flashes that come to him on television, there are no u at trailers following the hearse. Whoever will be chief among you, said Jesus, must be your servant, and in order to live, you have to be willing to die. And if we lose our lives to find them again in Jesus Christ, Mother Teresa, Gladys Aylward, Adger McKay, Elizabeth Wilson, many, many other people, Frank McElroy, who's gone to be with Jesus, we can learn what lessons of service are all about. We can keep our priorities straight. We can get rid of the pride which Satan inspires, which breaks our fellowship, and which creates trouble. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for great and good lives. We thank you for people whose love for Jesus, people who are living now and people who have gone on before, inspire us to want to follow in their steps. We pray that you will cause us to think about what Jesus was teaching his disciples there in that upper room. Help us to know that the antidote to our pride is the humility which is willing to die to self in order that Jesus might come first. And as long as he's first, we don't care who's second. We pray, Father, that you will help us so to stay in his word that it will cleanse us from the defilement of the world's way of thinking, from its customs, and its way of looking at things, and its way of putting things into our heads through television and through other activities and pressures. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you will help us to know that in a real sense, we have to go to Gethsemane, and drink of the cup that you drank of, and be baptized with the baptism that you were baptized with, and to be able to say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And so help us to be loving, help us to be forgiving, help us to know that the one of whom Jim sang this morning is ready with open arms to receive us, no matter what kind of prodigal we are, the one in the far country or the other one that's in the house, and teach us the lesson that we need to know and to find in him 10,000 charms. And so, Father, take us from this place this day to rededicate our lives to Thee. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.